Good evening, and welcome to the second lecture of the third week of 1988 Rare Book School. It's very enterprising of you all to leave wherever it is that you live that's cooler. On such an occasion, they promise uh, better weather tomorrow, but they promised better weather today, too. And uh, we shall see. Richard Landon is an old friend of the School of Library Service. He's lectured here two or three times before. And he will be in residence as visiting professor during the spring term 1988-89 when I am someplace else. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to be, but I know where I'm not going to be. And I will miss you all terribly. <laughs> but I leave you as I'm about to demonstrate in good hands. Richard Landon. Thank you. What an impressive <clears throat> crowd. This is, uh, I was going to say this is more than I normally draw in New York. Uh, I appear before you this afternoon not as the outcast prophet, as Terry neglected to uh, say the title of this is The Outcast Prophet and Other Tales of Rarity from the True North. I appear not as the outcast prophet despite appearances, for I bring you no prophecies except that good rare books are likely to become more expensive, which hardly ranks with the eminent soothsayings of Western culture, but rather as a tale-bearer, an East War to leave manifestation from the campfires of the North. Without much East War, perhaps apparition, would be a more evocative term. I have two tales to begin and one to finish. The first concerns a rare book, perhaps an unique exemplar, of which I feel a certain amount of confidence in declaring myself to be the only reader in at least a century, uh, with all the subtle implications that may entail. The second tale is rather more speculative, and that is the tale of the book's publisher, which with the academic license so prevalent in our institutions of higher learning might be classified as research and progress. <clears throat> That's by way of a warning. In 1977, I purchased from David Mason, a Toronto antiquarian bookseller, a nondescript looking three-decker novel called The Outcast Prophet by B.W. Arthur Slay, Esquire, published in London in 1847. I was attracted to it because of its obvious Canadian content. Uh, you only had to read about 10 pages to determine that at least part of it was set in Canada. And because I recognized the name of the author, whose pine forests and hackmatack clearings, one of those unforgettable titles, uh, London, Bentley, 1853, is a well-known, if rather eccentric, political, social, and economic account of the British North American provinces with a couple of chapters on the United States. I also like the price, which was $300. <clears throat> I read a bit of The Outcast Prophet, which struck me as being strongly influenced by Fenimore Cooper, 
and decided to attempt to find out a bit more about it. In pine forests and hackmatack clearings, Slade is not mentioned as earlier work, and in Richard Bentley's list of the principal publications during the year 1853, London, privately printed 1919, it is stated in a biographical note on Slade that Pine Forest is apparently his only literary work. I could not find the outcast prophet listed in the National Union Catalog, the British Museum Catalog, the Toronto Public Library, Canadiana Catalog, Landy, Waters, nor any of the standard Canadiana sources. It was not in the new Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature, uh, nor in the old. Uh, Watt or Lowndes, I looked in vain in Sadler's catalogue of 19th century fiction. The only listing of the book I could discover was in the English catalogue of books, where in the usual single line, there was some evidence that the book had at least been officially issued. I was now intrigued by the possibility of having an apparently unrecorded copy of a significant book and reflecting on the various factors which seem to determine the relative rarity of books, fastened on the name of the publisher, Thomas Cotley Newby, as providing the primary clue. I was vaguely aware of Newby as the publisher of Trollope's first novel, The McDermott's of Ballyclaren, 1847, itself something of a rarity, and thus wrote to Robert Lee Wolfe, asking him whether he had ever seen or heard of the outcast prophet and whether he could tell me anything about Newby. Professor Wolfe replied that, alas, he did not own a copy of the novel, nor had he ever encountered it. He did, however, provide me with several references to Newby and reminded me that he, Newby, had also published the first edition of Wuthering Heights with Agnes Gray's Volume 3 in 1847. Clearly, 1847 was something of a banner year for Thomas Cotley Newby. I will return to the Newby tale, but first allow me to introduce you to the outcast prophet, Anne B.W. Arthur Slay, that is S-L-E-I-G-H. Burrow Wilcox Arthur Slay drew his first breath on the shores of the mighty St. Lawrence, as he put it himself, in 1821. He was educated in England and after 1834 in Lower Canada. He commenced a military career in 1842 as an ensign in the 2nd West India Regiment and purchased a lieutenancy in Jamaica in 1844. In 1845, he transferred his commission to the 77th Foot Regiment, was posted to Halifax in the spring of 1846 and to Quebec later in the same year. In 1848, the 77th foot was gazetted as having returned to England, and it is probable that Slay sold his commission. He reappeared in Prince Edward Island about 1850, having purchased 100,000 acres and set up as a country gentleman, becoming a justice of the peace and a lieutenant colonel in a militia regiment, hence his designation on the title page of Pine Forest. His caustic opinions of life in the colonies were given full bent in full vent in uh, Pine Forest. He preferred to live in Halifax because of the general tone of its society compared to Charlottetown, uh, whose lawyers he designated the 40 Thieves. 
He despaired of responsible government on the island, commenting that, quote, removed as they are from all intercourse with the world, these narrow-minded provincials really fancy themselves par excellence, the people of British North America. And when they mention a meeting of the cabinet, your thoughts are at once waft, wafted to Downing Street uh, from the important air of the announcement. But when the prime minister is seen emerging from his tavern and the councillors from their shops, the illusion vanishes as the baseless fabric, etc. Particularly when an honorable executive councillor's dray stops the way and he descends from his bundles of dried codfish to sit at the council board in the province building. He also records in detail Joseph Howe's victory in the election of 1851 when barrels of rum with which Slay had traveled in a stagecoach carried the day. Slay traveled in the United States and was a good deal more complimentary concerning its citizens and institutions than many of his contemporaries from England. He particularly approved of Boston, captivating, homelike, and hospitable, and remarks that the Library of Harvard College, together with the collections of the Boston Athenaeum and the public library, means that, quote, it must be allowed that Boston offers to the scholar a more advantageous residence than any other spot in the Western world. He even attended the annual dinner given on the anniversary of Her Majesty's birthday, the Albion Hotel on May 24th. You'll remember a holiday still celebrated in Canada, although not in England. Uh, May 24th, 1852, the menu for which included English South Down mutton with caper sauce, which had been brought in ice from England. He was also impressed by New York, particularly the theaters and hotels, but his remarks on the politics of the United States were a bit more acerbic. Quote, as a proof of that extraordinary political influence of mobocracy, it may be stated that not one American distinguished for exalted eloquence, for learning, or for any other qualification which may have rendered him famous abroad has ever reached that acme of an American's ambition, the presidential seat. Perhaps more prophetic than retrospective. In 1852, Slay attempted to establish a steamship service from New York to Quebec via Halifax, Charlottetown, Newcastle. But due to the cost of insurance, the scheme failed, and he returned to England and sold his Prince Edward Island estates. In 1855, together with three partners, he founded the Daily Telegraph, the first Tuppany daily newspaper published in London. Although eventually very successful and flourishing today under Canadian ownership, the Telegraph was sold to cover debts for machinery and paper, and by 1857, Slay was in bankruptcy court. At, the, at that time, his assets were less than 50 pounds, and he owed 523 pounds. He died at Chelsea on March 22, 1869, and nothing seems to be known of the last 12 years of his life. The Outcast Prophet is a conventional three-volume novel called A Post Octavo by its publisher and bound in linen back paper-covered boards with paper labels. The preface, rather laconically, explains that, quote, the following pages which are submitted to public perusal, 
were written to pass away weary hours spent in colonial service in the West Indies and North America. The tedium of a lazy barrack life in the tropics and a couple of stupid stations in the Canadas and neighboring provinces where the author was quartered with a detachment or the headquarters of his regiment were thus pleasantly diversified in the resources of his pen and in the solitude of his own reflections that those readers who favor him with the perusal of this work may obtain the same happy results, he would fain hope. That they will, he dare not prophesy, but that he may not be entirely outcast from their good opinion, friends have been so indulgent as to predict. Should their kind offices have led them further through personal regard than prudence would warrant, he can only promise that he will book them forevermore as fitting companions of his own outcast prophet, and both conjointly shall be consigned to the shelf. In this case, he knew not how prophetically he wrote. <laughs> the novel opens with a flamboyant description of the wilderness. Quote, Reader, if thou hast traversed the vast and luxurious wilds of Western America, floated upon her silvery streams, or hunted through the trackless and impenetrable forests of her far west, you must have been charmed with a country wherein nature hath so bounteously bestowed her favors and created a land that can only be compared to our loftiest ideas of paradisical splendor. We find vast rivers piercing through mountain ravines, many of them describing courses of above 4,000 miles, flowing through a country surrounded on all sides by noble trees, luxuriant flowers, and sweet-smelling herbs while the sparkling bosom of the waters is here and there dotted with fairy isles, from the banks of which droop the sumac and sarsaparilla, glittering with the surge of the turbulent stream, surrounded by the noble oak, the aspen, or the falling willow, upon the banks, branches of which sport the heron and kingfisher, anxiously watching their finny prey. Tis here, surrounded by animated nature, luxuriant climes and plenteous hunting grounds that the Indians, lords of these vast inheritance, recline upon their verdant banks. One wonders how far Slate ventured outside his stupid station and <laughs> what he was doing during the winter. The action commences eventually at Fort Ontario in the year 1774 where the commander, Major Harding, his daughter, Viola, and his niece, Honor, both very beautiful, live with his son, Reginald, and a Yankee trader named Joe Wisp, the stock character. Within the first 100 pages, Reginald and Wisp kill and scalp several Indians, an acti activity which continues unabated throughout the three volumes. The party is joined by a gallant hunter, Ranoka, who falls for Viola, and a bishop from Quebec and his beautiful niece, Ami, for whom a career in a convent is intended. It is proposed that the party, without the commander, journey to Virginia via the Western Territory. Reginald has by this time fallen in love with Ami, and there is a longish discussion of religious tolerance, <coughs> from which I will not quote. The outcast prophet appears at the end of volume one. 
quote, the gurgling bayou pursued its noiseless course, winding amongst the verdant plains with the forms and turnings of a serpent through a scene of peace and contentment. On a sudden, from the distant ravine of the gloomy forest emerged a tall figure, attired from head to foot in a costume as novel as strange. From his shoulders was suspended a blanket of a deep scarlet dye. He wore trousers of tanned skin to his knees, while a pair of leggings enclosed his feet. No firearms or any weapon appeared. His face was open and manly, bearing a proud and haughty look, while from beneath his black hair was an expressive and lofty forehead. He approached the encampment with cautious steps. Upon turning an angle of the woods, the rays of the moon fully exposed this mysterious being, and now was also seen a long beard reaching from his chin nearly to his middle. The prophet has been banished from society by his father for marrying an Indian princess, now deceased, and lives with two children in the wilderness where his powers of prophecy have enabled him to be adopted by a confederacy of tribes. His sworn enemies are, rather unfortunately, called the Winnebago's. There is much made of his mysterious past, but he proves adept at scalping as well and accompanies the party. It will not, I'm sure, amaze you to learn that he turns out to be Reginald's long-lost brother. In the middle of Volume 2, the stalwart party's encounter, party encounters a new problem, the American Revolution. Job Wish, Wisp expresses the view that the conflict is a regrettable sort of civil war. Quote, I am sorry the king taxed the people, very sorry, for it makes me feel rather squally. But still our folks have no business in taking up arms against the mother country. I hope their impudence will be punished. I love old Georgie and trust that you will agree with me that a better creature, God bless him, never drew the breath of tarnal life and that you will fight for him, king and country, forever. This introduces a whole new series of adventures, including the separation of Reginald and Ami, Reginald's belief that Ami has been killed, his captaincy of a troop of the loyal Virginian rangers who reside in the dismal swamp, his intercession on behalf of a revolutionary unjustly accused of treason. All Virginian revolutionaries are gentlemen. And the outcast prophet's attempts to return to civilization. An instance of the prophet's sensibility is given. One thing was, however, wanting to render our happiness complete, and that was, you will laugh, I dare say, when I tell you some books wherewith to pass our evenings when tired of hearing the anecdotes of adventures narrated by the traders, some of whom paid us frequent visits. I resolved to remove this obstacle so as to complete our felicity. For this purpose, I made instant preparations to start for Mackinac, or as some call it, Mackinac, where I hoped to be enabled to dispose of some valuable peltries I had then in my possession for books. I started and arrived in safety at my destination. I procured the books, having bought a large number that had been left there by a missionary. <clears throat> Obviously, came down to Fourth Avenue. All is revolved, resolved in the end. The prophet becomes possessed of his large inheritance. 
Reginald marries Ami. Viola pines away and dies of a broken heart because Ranoka has been killed, the only principal member of the party not to return. The rescued Virginia revolutionary who has turned loyalist marries Honor. And Job Wisp opens a store and becomes a member of parliament. <laughs> the novel limps quickly to conclusion. The Outcast Prophet was reviewed only once, as far as I've been able to discover. The new monthly magazine, edited by W. Harrison Ainsworth, was enthusiastic. If Mr. Slay and his literary militant career has not required all the refined art and combined skill and taste necessary to produce a first-rate work of fiction, he has an advantage on his side which the professed novelist has not always at command which is abundance of material. The fact that this remote fort of Ontario with its gruff commandant, a pretty daughter, the scapegrace Reginald, and that character essential to all backwoods stories, Job Wisp, have entertained us infinitely. As to the bishop and the hero and his daughter, the reviewer didn't read the book very carefully, uh, <clears throat> there is less to say. Whatever may be the errors of religious enthusiasm, they are not fit subjects for irreverent frivolity. But talk of fights with Indians, here they are blown up by gar barrels of gunpowder, and as to everlasting trails, here they are carried off the snow from branch, branch to branch across the pathless forest. Then we have the journey to Virginia and the outcast prophet, an original and peculiar character full of interest. Other novels of the month may, may be more ambitious in their themes and more gorgeous in their execution, but Mr. Slay's work is the most amusing, and it is very questionable if that is not the most legitimate province of fiction. You will recall some of the competition. And so the outcast prophet sank into the morass of the 40,000 novels estimated to be, have been published, during the reign of Queen Victoria. To return to Thomas Cotley Newby, I have now discovered two of his catalogs, one bound into a copy of George Grote's Seven Letters on the Recent Politics of Switzerland and appropriately dated October 1847. It advertises as just published The Outcast Prophet and cites the new monthly review. Wuthering Heights is in the press while the McDermott's of Ballycloran is published with citations for three reviews, a very clever novel, says the Athenaeum. The other works in the catalog, there are 33 titles altogether, constitute an impressive range of fiction, history, and general works. Leopold Ronk's History of the Prussian Monarchy and Captain Medwin's Life of Shelley are paired with The Curate of Wildmere by Anon, and a second edition of The Cardinal's Daughter, an evocative title, by the author of The Scottish Heiress. This is next to Jeremiah Parks, by the widow of the author of The Cardinal's Daughter. Sixty Years Hence, a political novel, here anonymous, but by Charles Frederick Henningsen, uh, together with Francis Weiss's America, Its Realities and Resources, and hints on the nature and management of duns, together with hints on husband catching by the same author. The Atlas comments, 
an author who first instructs men how to manage duns and then teaches young ladies how to become husband trappers can be no ordinary person. <laughs> but the most intriguing title in the catalog is number 33, An Essay on Sex in the World to Come by the Reverend J.B. Houghton. Alas, I have not been able to locate this book and can report no farther. The second catalog, bound into volume one of Annette Marie Mellard's Gilles Talbot of 1857, which records Newby's change of address from 72 Mortimer Street to number 30 Welbeck Street, both in Cavendish Square, continues with an analogous range of books. Naples, political, social, and religious in two volumes is characterized as a work with the rare merit of never wearying the reader. R.R. R. Madden reappears with the Phantasmata and the second edition of his literary life and correspondence of the Countess of Blessington, the most valuable book of the last half century, according to the Tribune. Uh, Dr. Richard Robert Madden, as it happens, was a prolific author, many of whose works were published by Newby, and he seems to have been almost a prototype of the Victorian colonial administrator. He served in Jamaica, Cuba, Egypt, the west coast of Africa, Portugal, and western Australia, traveled around North America and the Levant. Uh, Captain Medwin's Life of Shelley is still advertised and is joined by his Life of Savonarola. One type of book prominently featured in the 1857 catalog can be categorized as an emigration guides. Perils, Pastimes, and Pleasures of an Emigrant by a Sydney Surgeon, The Book of the Cape by Lieutenant Colonel Napier, and California, Its Gold and Its Inhabitants by Sir Henry Huntley. Quote, in speaking of the Americans, it must be borne in mind that he is represented as he is found in California, so far as respects the mass at that period, since matters have in somewhat, have in some degree improved. The earliest newbie imprint I've been, I have discovered so far is dated 1843 and is called The Poles in the 17th Century, an historical novel by Count Henry Krasinski. Volume one has tipped in at the beginning a list of subscribers headed by the Duke and Duchess of Buccleuch, five copies, while the Duchess of Sutherland took 15 copies. In all, the subscribers account for 175 copies. Four copies are now located in NUC with the BM catalog, the Wolf collection, and Toronto, adding three more. <clears throat> Newby's 1847 and 1857 catalogs give at least the impression of stability, if not prosperity. While certainly not a list to rival that of the Bentleys, the Murrays, or Messrs. Chapman and Hall, it has some range, with several titles to appeal to a serious reading public. This impression is apparently false, at least according to Anthony Trollope and the Brontes. <clears throat> Trollope comments rather bitterly on Newby in his autobiography. His mother, Frances, had arranged for Newby to publish the McDermott's of Ballyclaren, and two letters from Newby to Trollope, dated September 15, 1845, survive. 
which set out the terms of their agreement. 400 copies will be printed, about 190 will be required to cover expenses, and the profits beyond that number will be 20 shillings uh, thruppence. Was the standard half profits arrangement for a three volume novel that would retail for 31 shillings sixpence. Trollope recollected that, quote, it was to be printed at his expense and he was to give me half the profits. Half the profits? Many a young author expects much from such an undertaking. I can with truth declare that I expected nothing, and I got nothing. Nor did I expect fame or even acknowledgement. I was sure that the book would fail, and it did fail most absolutely. I never heard of a person reading it in those days. If there was any notice taken of it by any critic of the day, I did not see it. I never asked any questions about it or wrote a single letter on the subject to the publisher. I have Mr. Newby's agreement with me in duplicate and one or two preliminary notes, but beyond that, I did not have a word from Mr. Newby. I am sure that he did not wrong me and that he paid me nothing. It is probable that he did not sell 50 copies of the work, but of what he did sell, he gave me no account. <clears throat> in mitigation, it might be remembered the Trollope during his career as a writer, he died in 1882, the same year as Newby, had no less than 17 publishers, including almost every great name of the century. While Trollope made no money, neither did Newby, and what probably irritated Trollope most was his procrastination over a period of two years. There's some evidence that Newby advertised the McDermott's as being by the son of Tra Francis Trollope, and that probably didn't help the relationship either. <clears throat> the story of Mr. Newby's relationship with Emily and Anne Bronte is even more torturous. He had contracted to publish Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey together as a three-decker, but had demanded money as part payment. Clearly, Newby was confused by the correspondence he was having with Ellis and Acton Bell, with Kerr occasionally thrown in for good measure. But he did know that Jane Eyre was being published by Smith Elder, and it appeared to great acclaim on October 16, 1847. Newby seems to have delayed publication of Wuthering Heights until December and then intimated to the trade that Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell were all one person. Charlotte, in a letter to Mr. Williams of Smith Elder, made inquiries on behalf of her sisters. Quote, a prose work by Ellis and Acton will soon appear. It should have been out, indeed, long since, for the first proof sheets were already in the press at the commencement of last August before Kerr Bell had placed the manuscript of Jane Eyre in your hands. Mr. Newby, however, does not do business like Messrs. Smith and Elder. A different spirit seems to preside at 172 Mortimer Street to that which guides the helm at 65 Corn Hill. Mr. Newby shuffles, gives his word, and breaks it. Messrs. Smith and Elder's performance is always better than their promise. My relatives have suffered from exhausting delay and procrastination while I have to acknowledge the benefits of a management at once businesslike and gentlemanlike, energetic and considerate. I should like to know if Mr. Newby often acts as he has done to my relatives or whether this is an exceptional instance of his method. Do you know and can you tell me anything about him? 
You must excuse me for going to the point at once. When I want to learn anything, if my questions are... You must excuse me for going to the point at once when I want to learn anything. If my questions are impertinent, you are, of course, at liberty to decline answering them. In 1848, Newby wrote to either Emily or Anne, the envelope is addressed to Ellis Bell, to make arrangements for another book. And the Tenet of Wildfell Hall was published in July 1848. He then reported it to an American firm as a new work by Currer Bell, that is, Charlotte, saying that all the bells were one. Smith Elder sent word of this to Haworth, and it's caused such consternation that Charlotte and Anne made one of their few trips to London to meet their publishers. Mr. Newby was surprised, as were Mr. Smith and Mr. Williams, to discover that the two people they had corresponded with as men were decidedly not. Charlotte describes the confrontation in a letter to Mary Taylor of September 4th, 1848. Quote, About two months since, I had a letter from my publisher, Smith and Elder, saying that Jane Eyre had had a great run in America, and that a publisher there had consequently bid high for the first sheets of a new work by Currer Bell, which they had promised to let him have. Presently after came another missive from Smith and Elder, their American correspondent had written to them complaining that the first sheets of a new work by Currer Bell had already been received, and not by their house, but by a rival publisher, and asking the meaning of such false play. It enclosed an extract from a letter from Mr. Newby, A&E Bell's publisher, affirming that to the best of his belief, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and Agnes Gray, and the tenant of Wildfell Hall, the new work, were all a production of one author. This was a lie, as Newby had been told repeatedly, that they were the production of three different authors, but the fact was he wanted to make a dishonest move in the game to make the public and the trade believe they had got hold of Currer Bell, and thus cheat Smith and Elder by securing the American publisher's bid. The upshot of it was that on the very day I received Smith and Elder's letter, Anne and I packed up a small box, sent it down to Keithley, set, ourselves out, set out ourselves after tea, walked through a snowstorm to the station, got to Leeds and whirled up by the night train to London with the view of proving our separate identity to Smith and Elder and confronting Newby with his lie. We arrived at the Chapter Coffee House, our old place, Polly. We did not well know where else to go about 8 o'clock in the morning. We washed ourselves, had some breakfast, sat a few minutes, and then set off in queer inward excitement to 65 Corn Hill. Neither Mr. Smith nor Mr. Williams knew we were coming. They had never seen us. They did not know whether we were men or women, but had always written to us as men. We found 65 to be a large bookseller's shop in a street almost as bustling as the Strand. We went in, walked up to the counter. There are a great many young men and lads there, here and there. I said to the first I could accost, may I see Mr. Smith? He hesitated, looked a little surprised. We sat down and waited a while looking at some books on the counter, publications of theirs well known to us, of many of which they had sent us copies as presents. At last we were shown up to Mr. Smith. Is it Mr. Smith, I said, looking up through my spectacles at the tall young man? It is. I then put his own letter into his hand, directed to Currer Bell. 
He looked at it and then at me again. Where did you get this, he said. I laughed at his perplexity. A recognition took place. I gave my real name, Miss Bronte. We were in a small room sealed with a great skylight and there were and their explanations were rapidly gone into, Mr. Newby being anathematized, I fear, with undue vehemence. Mr. Smith hurried out and returned quickly with one whom he introduced as Mr. Williams, a pale, mild, drooping man of 50, very like a faded Tom Dixon. Another recognition and a long, nervous shaking of hands, then followed talk, 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 Mr. Williams being silent, Mr. Smith loquacious. <clears throat> she then describes in detail a visit to a performance of the Barber of Seville and the families of Mr. Smith and Mr. Williams. She continues, on Tuesday morning we left London laden with books which Mr. Smith had given us and got safely home. A more jaded wretch than I looked when I returned it would be difficult to conceive. I was thin when I went but was meager indeed when I returned. My face looked gray and very old with, the strange, with strange deep lines plowed in it. My eyes stared unnaturally. I was weak and yet restless. In a while, however, the bad effects of excitement went off and I regained my normal condition. We saw Mr. Newby, but more of him another time. I don't, I suppose, have to tell you that that letter does not seem to be extant if it was written. Newby published a so-called second edition of the Tenants of Wildfell Hall in 1848, really a reissue of the sheets with a canceled title, but the Bells had collectively decided to sever their relationship with him. Charlotte, however, remembered the 50 pounds paid to Mr. Newby for Wuthering Heights, and he reappears in her correspondence with Smith Elder from time to time over the next few years. Quote, I am indeed surprised that Mr. Newby should say that he is to publish another work by Ellison Acton Bell. Acton has had quite enough of him. I think I have before intimated that that author never more intends to have Mr. Newby for a publisher. Not only does he seem to forget that engagement should, made should be fulfilled, but by a system of petty and contemptible maneuvering, he throws an air of charlatanry over the works of which he has the management. This does not suit the bells. They have their own rude North Country ideas of what is delicate, honorable, and gentlemanlike. Newby's conduct in no sort corresponds with these notions. They have found him, I will not say what they have found him. Two words that would exactly suit him are at my pen point, but I shall not take the trouble to employ them. <clears throat> and from September 13, 1850, Mr. Newby undertook first to print 350 copies of Wuthering Heights, but he afterwards declared he had only printed 250. I doubt whether he could be induced to return the 50 pounds without a good deal of trouble, much more than I should feel justified in delegating to Mr. Smith. For my part, the conclusion I drew from the whole of Mr. Newby's conduct to my sisters was that he is a man with whom it is desirable to have little to do. I think he must be needy as well as tricky, and if he is, one would not distress him even for one's rights. The last word of Mr. Newby from this quarter is contained in an arch letter from Charlotte on December 3, 1850 to George Smith. 
On December 10th, Smith Elder issued a new edition of Wuthering Heights. Quote, as to Mr. Newby, he charms me. First, there is the fascinating coyness with which he shuns your pursuit. For a month or nearly two months, have you been fondly hoping to win from him an interview while he has been making himself as scarce as violets at Christmas, aristocratically absenting himself from town, evading your grasp like a publisher metamorphosed into a rainbow. Then when you come upon him in that fatal way in Regent Street, pin him down and hunt him home with more promptitude than politeness and with a want of delicate consideration for your victim's fine feelings calculated to awaken emotions of regret, that victim is still ready for the emergency. Scorning to stand on the defensive, he at once assumes the offensive. Not only has he realized no profit, he has sustained actual loss, and to account for this adds with the sublime boldness of invention that the author wished him to spend all possible pro profits in advertisements. Equally well acted, too, is the artless simplicity of his surprise at the news you communicate, and his pretty little menace of a chancery injunction consummates the picture and makes it perfect. Any statements of account he may send, I shall at once transmit to you. In your hands I leave him, deal with him as you list, but I heartily wish you well rid of the business. On referring to Mr. Newby's letters, I find in one of them a boast that he is advertising vigorously. I remember that this flourish caused us to look out carefully for the results of his vast exertions, but though we everywhere encountered Jane Eyre, it was as rare a thing to find an advertisement of Wuthering Heights as it appears to be to meet with Mr. Newby in town at an unfashionable season of the year. The fact is that he advertised the book very scantily and for a very short time. Of course, we never expressed a wish or uttered an injunction on the subject, nor was it likely we should, as it was rather uh, important to us to recover the 50 pounds we advanced. More we did not ask. I would say something about regret for the trouble you have had in your chase of this ethereal and evanescent ornament of the trade, but I fear apologies would be even worse than thanks. Both these shall be left out. And thus, Mr. Newby lost another of the great authors of the 19th century. A more sympathetic view of Thomas Cotley Newby comes from the pen of Charlotte Riddle, a popular writer whose autobiographical novel, A Struggle for Fame, Bentley, 1883, contains a thinly disguised description of the publisher. Quote, nature had made Mr. Vassett an antiquarian, necessity a publisher. And if he could not claim to be a Murray, no one could speak of him as a disciple of the Minerva Press. <clears throat> Newby also published her first novel, Zuriel's Grandchild, in 1855, so efficiently that no copy of the first edition has survived. It was reprinted as Joy After Sorrow in 1873. Mrs. Riddle, then Miss Cowan, came to London in January 1855 from Ireland, and her memories of Newbury are obviously influenced by the weather. Quote, I could always, when the day was frightfully cold, and what a winter that was when I first came to London, turn into Mr. Newby's snug and warm office in Welbeck Street and have a talk with him and his woman of business, Miss Springett. 
She was a lady, always kind, nice, and capable. She remained with him until her death, I believe. Nevertheless, when Miss Cowan's second novel, The Moors and the Fens, was published in 1856, it was offered to and accepted by Smith Elder. And once again, Mr. Newby had provided only the first rather tentative assistance to an author who went on to fame and some fortune. In 1857, when Bentley's published The Ruling Passion, they thought they were getting her first novel, the confusion possibly resulting from her use of two pseudonyms. Newby obviously published a great many novels over a long period. Uh, Wolf estimated he had several hundred in his collection, including many of the later works of G.P.R. James. These are, according to Sadler,